You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about machine learning, AI, predictive analytics, data science, all these buzzwords, and the application of it in the clinical development process. An interview with Karim Malki from UCB. Do you like this podcast? Do you learn from it? Do you benefit from it? Then please tell your colleagues about this podcast. Share it on social media and help to get spread the word about it. Because... I really want to help as many statisticians as possible with this podcast. And if we can improve overall the performance of uh, statistics within the healthcare sector, that will benefit everybody. So please share this podcast if you like it, if you benefit from it, if you enjoy it uh, with your colleagues. One thing that I recently learned is that a lot of you are listening uh, to this actually on the browser. So if you only listen to this through the browser, that's of course possible, but maybe you don't know that you can also listen it to uh, your smartphone. There are apps both on Android and on the uh, iPhones uh, to listen to podcasts and then, you know, just Use one of these podcasts app, search for the effective statistician, and you'll automatically find it in there. Then you can subscribe to this podcast, and each week automatically the podcast episode will be downloaded to your player, and you can listen to it while you're commuting, while you're running, while you're doing homework, whatever, all these different things um, where you just need to do something physically but your brain has capacity to do something else please please tell your colleagues about it it would be awesome to have more and more listeners this podcast is produced in association with psi a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefits of patients join psi today further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and there are more and more coming of these, and much, much more. The reduced rates is just £20 for non-high-income countries and only £95 for high-income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And this is the third interview that I'm doing here in the UK at the UCB offices. And today I'm talking with uh, Karim. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Very good. So, um, Karim, you lead a really interesting group here at UCB, and you also have a very interesting career that actually led you to this place. So, so maybe you can 
speak a little bit about um, what your career has been up to now and um, what your role is here at UCB. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm currently head of predictive analytics. Uh, my group sits in uh, statistical science. And obviously predictive analytics is one of those umbrella terms that can mean many, many things. But what we try to do is we try to bring some of the big data methods, AI methods, and machine learning in the clinical development space. And so we, we are obviously statisticians, so we have an understanding of uh, uh, clinical data and the um, uh, drug development process. Um, but in addition to this, we also have, a, have an eye out for more innovative and um, multi-variable, I would say, methods for data analysis. What have been your, been your personal exposure to these more new approaches, these big data approaches, deep learning approaches, things like that? Yeah, well, I started, uh, so I was at King's, King's College for, for, for many years, and I think I was among the first, probably, to apply some of these methods to the analysis of genome-wide association studies. Mm -hmm. So initially there, it was very much a univariate type of approach where people were trying to find association between single variants and, uh, and an outcome. And then it clearly became apparent, just because of the way uh, genes work, that we were actually looking for the potential interaction mm -hmm. and combination of many, many variables of very, very little effect. And so there are methods that can learn to detect patterns of statistical regularity in this very sparse and complex data set, which is still very true for any complex um, disorder, uh, might give more, more information. And at the time, of course, the term AI wasn't so used as it is now. It was also some other uh, machine learning and I have to say that the platforms and some of the tools were also not so widespread. So there the challenge was really in how do we process. The implementation. The, the implementation theory was there, but the implementation was Correct, there. And, you yeah. know, and translating. And so I remember the time we borrowed, from, uh, you know, we, 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 we borrowed ideas from our neuroimaging colleagues and they were uh, a little bit more advanced in that space. Obviously they, they work with voxels, right? And, we have different challenges, but there the challenge was to translate some of these methods into the into into the uh, genetics space. And so again, again, a um, an interest of how these methods could be applied uh, to large scale genetic and genomic um, uh, data sets, and it really started from there. And then once once you get into these methods, you quickly find applications everywhere. And uh, I think in the course of 10 years, the advancement in the field has been um, uh, stratospheric, right? So yeah. we now we see the, uh, uh, well, we see the coming of AI, different platforms, uh, a lot of deep learning. And that's thanks also, I think, to progress in uh, computers in general. So now we have very powerful computers. We, we have code that runs very well on the GPUs and we have specialized machines and so it's becoming much more accessible. And I think there's a lot of new players in the field, you know, it's, it's a lot of 
really big companies that invest a lot of uh, time and effort in, in improving these things because it's, it's basically their business model. Absolutely, and I think in, in many applications, not in all applications, right? in many applications, they're outclassing and outperforming many of the traditional methods uh, that we've seen so far. Again, I think we have to be a bit cautious and we have to apply these methods to the right questions, with the right data, and in a judicious, in a judicious manner. So how was it when you then entered the pharmaceutical industry with this background? What, what were your main tasks there? Well, I started Lily in the pharmaceutical industry. But there I was in the drug discovery part of the organization. And so in the, in the drug discovery, we do come across large data sets, right? So uh, if we look at all the omics, multi-omics, gene expression, mm -hmm. it's very common to be working with thousands of samples, each with potentially millions of features. And so, features you mean by features variables? variables. Yeah. In, yeah no, I'm, I'm sorry, I switched <laughs> between statistics and uh, and uh, machine learning terminology. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so, in in uh, uh, in that space, these methods tend to work reasonably well. Yeah. And they work very well for classification, but also for variable reduction. Yeah. Right? To try to zoom in and really understand what's driving the signal. I think in data science it's called feature selection. Feature selection, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a, uh, often when we think about machine learning, we just think about you know, potential for classifications, but there are different applications for it, and that's, that's certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah. I once had a um, person that had a very similar background um, in my team, so I got exposed a little bit more to these kind of terminology yeah. um, and uh, so that's quite interesting. So and now at hosted from your role at Lilly in the discovery phase, how's that now changed at UCB? Well so at UCB uh, we sit in a clinical development. Right? So now we, we have a compound right? and then we are uh, supporting all phases of uh, clinical trials and beyond because really the application of these methods extend across all clinical development yeah. um, through approval and, and even beyond. And importantly, in fact, a lot of the applications of AI are now in the post-approval stages. Yeah, really, where large data exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it stretch, you know, all the way to commercial pricing um, and beyond. Yeah. So recently you have been quite instrumental in organizing a really, really nice uh, event together with Cytel and with PSI, which was actually happening in the same location as we are recording this here. And um, for those of you who couldn't attend that, what was this event about? Yeah, well, it's, um, it was an event on the impact of AI on um, clinical development. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a very nice nice event and attracted a lot of interest across pharma and also uh, some academic, academic groups as well. And it was more about the identification of areas where AI can make a big impact on clinical development. And as we 
discussed before, um, I really see the drug life cycle as a hourglass leaning on its side, right? So in the we start with the discovery phase, yeah, where there is large and large amount of data, yeah, and then it kind of funnels. It funnels in, and then it goes through a very narrow opening. Once we have a compound, right, you filter through a very narrow opening into the clinical development space, where you don't have so much data. Where you don't have so much data, right? And that's where you know you start with the preclinical and early phase clinical trials, and then it fans out, it funnels out again, and we go towards you know the, the later stages clinical trials where we get more and more data and then we go into real world evidence, safety, marketing and then again you get the, more and more, more data. We get a massive amount of data, right? Also and much more heterogeneous data. Abs absolutely. I mean that's that's a whole other <laughs> discussion. But at the flanking side, you have large data and that's where the that's where the impact of AI is greatest, right? Because we, we particularly for uh, methods such as deep learning, we do need large and large data sets and there where you find it. So that's a natural fit. Yeah. Um, but now we're seeing that a lot of applications in the early stages of clinical, of clinical development as well. And here we're seeing technology permeating this space. For example, wearables. No. Okay. Can we use wearables? And they're generating a lot, a lot of data. And because wearables can also be easily used in uh, Early phase studies, yeah. correct. So, okay. absolutely, we have seen historical data as well from previous trials. Can we combine it? And mm -hmm. that's another advantage, I think, of these of, of these methods. It's the possibility of integrating many data sources. Many, okay. many data sources. Um, and now we can ask questions. You know, for example, about what is the best site. Uh, you know, site selection. Uh, patient selection for inclusion in trials, we can run simulations. So it's so, not just about kind of the purely, let's say, biological medical part. Correct. It can be about lots of other problems around it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important area to talk about in an in in earlier episode with, with um, Andy Grief, we yeah. talked about the entrepreneurial mindset that uh, we, we need to have in order to contribute value. And there's lots of opportunity where um, thinking about um, uncertainty, measuring uncertainty, um, making sense of data, of available data, or helping to collect the right data to make good decisions can help a lot and, and can really um, contribute a lot of value to the overall company. Yeah, absolutely. And I would take it a step further and say that this is an area, particularly early um, stages of clinical development, which has some unique characteristics. And it's not only that there is smaller data traditionally available, it's also it's an area which is dense of statisticians. Right? Okay. That's where you're going to find a lot, lots and lots of statisticians who have experience in this domain. So they have an experience of clinical data. They have an experience of the questions that can be answered, but they don't always embrace the possibility that these methods are offering. Well, I think it could also be because, you know, they, uh, these methods come from other areas. 
Yeah? And and so so traditionally these you didn't have the questions, you didn't have the data. Correct. So I think it's a nice opportunity to learn something new, learn from other areas. Some of these, you know, in other biological areas, but some of these actually kind of in completely different related field like computer science and things like that, where we can learn a lot from and, and bring in uh, to these areas. And um, yeah, that's, that's a good. Do you have a, a case study for that? Yeah, we do. But just, just to go back to what you said um, before, in fact, I think that these methods are largely driven by the data science community, by the computer, computer science community. And we see that in the, also in some of the tools that are generated. Uh, for example, now Python almost is one of default languages. I mean, there are better languages for it, but there's, there's so much developed for, for Python, for instance. And that's, that's a language that is developed mostly by the computer science community. Um, but don't forget that these methods are really rooted within statistical sciences and they are within reach and of any statisticians. So the, the the learning curve to pick up these methods is not that big. And just remember a book that I looked into quite some time ago, The Elements of Statistical Learning, oh, yeah. Yeah. which is one of these classical handbooks where you um, learn a a lot about the different foundational things Correct. and um, a lot of the uh, applications that we see, uh, are, see, the foundations are already explained there and it's, uh, it's called statistical elements. That's a, yeah. Absolutely, and that's, that's uh, I think, in, I might be mistaken, but I think you can download it for free. Could be. But yeah. it's, um, it's, uh, that's uh, recommended. Yeah, we'll, we'll for sure uh, put the uh, reference into the social media. Yeah, I think, so, I think that's, that's a highly recommended uh, yeah. it's an awesome book. Yeah. Uh, resource. Yeah, but I'm saying it's, it's, the, the, these methods are, once you get into them, they are well within the reach and grasp, I think, of all statisticians. Um, and you don't have to be a master. At them, and there are things, for example, that computer scientists and data science do differently, mm -hmm. or have you know slightly different, different skills, language, different yeah. language. So, for example, the the skill and agility that they have in actually manipulating. We talked about the, the importance of the integrity of data. Yeah, yeah. When we deal with very very large data sets, you might want to have a certain agility. Uh, in, in being able to manipulate it in a yeah. way that you can actually then feed it into the algorithm. But what a statistician does bring, as we, as we touched upon, is really the identification of you know, the right design, the correct implementation of these algorithms, which is critical. And that's one, for example, one of the case studies that I can discuss with you. Okay, let's go into this case study. Um, okay, well, we've, um, as it happens, Commonly, um, we've um, outsourced or uh, requested the contribution of an external company uh, to apply some machine learning algorithms on some uh, physiological data. Mm -hmm. And what we he what, what I see here is a emerging phenomenon where now there is a myriad of small 
AI companies. Yeah, yeah. Each promising, stonking accuracy scores. Yeah. If you run their obscure algorithm that runs on their uniquely developed platform, right? Yes, a proprietary platform. Yeah, you know, <laughs> sort of proprietary platform, right? With that, you know, automagic feature that gives you. And you it, predicts, it predicts anything, right? Yeah. With 100% accuracy. At least 100% accuracy, right? Um, and so, okay, well, uh, so we've, um, we've actually looked, you know, often these companies will want to please you, right? So they won't necessarily do the most correct thing. They will try to give you anything that will make you happy, right? And yeah. the higher the accuracy, the happier you are, right? Um, and so we've looked at some of these um, algorithms that they've applied, and when you break them down in isolation, everything was correct. Mm -hmm. But how you've how they've done the feature selection and how they've done the cross validation was somewhat problematic. Okay, it's something that led to high overfitting. Okay, and. You know, and they came up with a stonking accuracy score, you know, very close to 100%. But when we actually show them how, you know, when you apply it properly, having a, you know, rigorous statistical approach, there was nothing there. Yeah. Or, and I give you other. Just, just to, uh, for those listeners who are not completely familiar with the terms, so. Basically, you have uh, two different st uh, steps there. You have first the variable selection, Correct. and you do that usually on a, on a training set of the data, Correct. and then you use the rest of the data to uh, make sure that that is not by chance, uh, because otherwise you, especially with big data sets, you might find, you know, fit, yeah, find lots of spurious things and it's just by chance and cross-validation is a method to, to actually look at um, how good this overall works. Correct. And, you know, this becomes ever so more important when we're dealing with small data sets. And that's what we were getting, mm -hmm. discussing before, right? So when, when, when you're not dealing with thousands of people but you have a sample of 50 or 100. Yeah. The, the risk of overfitting and making and some of these underlying assumptions become very important. Um, so this is something we come across quite, quite often. And um, the, the other... The other, um, the other thing is also, you know, it depends sometimes on, you know, how you fit in the data. Yeah, so so if, if you first already pre-select based on biologic reasoning uh, variables, you can come up with a very, very different outcome with the overall approach than if you just throw everything into it. Correct. I mean, there's, 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 there's various, various approaches, but I think this highlights the fact that running the algorithm is not always the difficulty, particularly today. Yeah. So you can go online, take a two-hour, three-hour course, and then um, you know, you, you you know how to run an algorithm. It still doesn't still doesn't mean that you can do proper statistical analysis. 
Yeah. You need to have a good understanding of the original problem, so the data, what is really required, and uh, so, so it's not just have someone in operations, correct, insource some uh, nice of these companies, then they come in, give me the data, show up two weeks later and have these stellar results, that's not how it works. Absolutely. And again, having being able to frame the question in a way that it's suitable for this method, first of all, it has to be a meaningful question that you want to start with, right? You mm -hmm. want to just answer a question just because you can. Yeah, you want to have questions, relevant questions to answer, Correct. not find anything in the data that you don't know what to do with it. Correct. I mean, you know, you can you can use them for exploratory purposes, right? In general, like other approaches, like data mining, come into, um, into uh, come come to mind. But generally, you want to, particularly for our field, uh, you want to make sure that you have a question which is very clear, yeah, and 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 uh, um, and appropriate. That helps you actually to move forward your pipeline. Absolutely. And 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 here's the distinctions I think are critical because they have this this understanding. And then the other. The other part is really having an understanding of the structure and substructure of the data. Mm. And so we think, you know, there's the old saying that, you know, if you're a hammer, all problems look like nails. And <laughs> here, there are some people that will apply one or two chosen methods to everything. everything, right? But again, it's not a shortcut. You still need to try to understand the structure, substructure of data and try to apply a method that best matches yeah. what you're trying. Um, what you're working with and what you're trying to, to answer. Yeah, and also I think you need to have a really good understanding of the data so um, and how these different things work together. So, so I've seen people that go then and come up with results and say, oh yeah, well, this variable is high, that variable is also very high. And people say, we know because that variable has Correct. actually mostly derived from that variable. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Yeah. Ab absolutely. But you need you need to spend the time yeah. and explore your data set as you would with any other yeah. um, method. So it's not a shortcut. And I, and I had occasions where people have come to me saying, you know, I've just tried everything, nothing works, can you do some machine learning on it? <laughs> and that's, you know, and that, that's not the approach, right? It's not this panacea or, or last or last resort. It's a method that has its right application. Yeah, and that, but I think that is um, also a little bit due to the hype about it. You know, is that people have exaggerated expectations sometimes, and as you said, sometimes that is fueled by actually companies that want to make a profit with it. And uh, so, so I think it's having this right balance between the hype, the really, really nice things that you can do with it. And so, so as you said, you know, picking the hammer when it's appropriate and picking a screwdriver yeah. otherwise, you know, or something else. Yeah. yeah, and it's, I see it, I think my team sees it very much as a, as a tool, as an instrument. If you can address the question using perhaps a more simple method or any other statistical method, then that's absolutely fine. I think we shouldn't be tribal um, in the application of any specific yeah. method. We should really start with a um, with from, from, the, from the questions and from the data.
Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that as we are gathering more and more data from more and more technology, we will be able to answer increasingly uh, complex questions. And I do think that the answer to complex questions generally comes from a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach, where statisticians are a critical element yeah. of. And so having, you know, being able to gain an appreciation of these methods, you don't, as I said, you don't have to become a master at them, but just understanding what these methods can do and being aware of some of the limitations, underlying assumptions, the appropriateness, will enable most statisticians to um, interact with you know, our data science, computer science partners, and together yep. we can work to bring forward um, projects that are meaningful to uh, any pharma company. So one of the words that is big buzzword in this yep. overall um, thing that we're talking about is this word of statistical innovation. So if you think about statistical innovation, what does that mean for you? Okay, well, again, it's, as you said, it's one of those terms that can mean uh, a lot of... Um, yeah, because a, I think there's no right or wrong, it's, you know, but, but for you personally, what, what does it mean? Well, I think it means two things to me, or how we are applying statistical innovation <laughs> within my group. And one of them is the applications of novel methods of analysis, for example, deep learning uh, and, and um, you know, other, other types of methods or a combination of methods. For example, can we use some of the Bayesian approaches to reduce some of the search space and then, you know, as you touched on before, you know, there might be some variables that have biological reasons for being there. You know, how, how, how do we incorporate different methods uh, to create approaches that can extract more insight mm -hmm. uh, from the available data. And then the, the second approach is really methods development. Okay. So I think certainly our group is involved in the development of novel methods of analysis and uh, it may be just combining a range of methods to create an algorithm that specifically answers questions or perhaps even looking at you know, developing an algorithm that improves on what is currently there. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, being at the forefront of methods development is an integral part of, uh, of innovation. Why and do you think it's so important as kind of a data science statistics organization within a company to work on these method development as well? Okay, because I think today uh, data is no longer a problem. So it used to be in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, accessing a uh, you know, large amount of data was complicated, was expensive. Uh, but today there are so many different type of repositories. You know, particularly pharma have like, uh, lots of um, uh, historical data yeah. um, available. So that's no longer an limiting factor. The areas are not completely away but has have decreased a lot sure yeah. but I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't rank that as the number one limiting factor where perhaps it could have been more in the past uh, today the limiting factor is how can we harness and use all this data that we uh, that we have available and uh, this I think gives us a lot of opportunities to look at methods that can integrate 
Mm. Lots of data that can leverage the combined power of everything that we have in order to extract, you know, further further insights. So I think I think we're facing a very nice opportunity uh, as well as challenge. And here, perhaps the traditional methods, particularly, and here I'm kind of thinking more of the kind of univariate type of methods. Yeah, they will still be very useful, uh, but we're never going to to, to, to replace them. Uh, but perhaps we can uh, look at other methods that can. Uh, allow us to use this data in, in novel ways and extract much more meaning than what we, we have. I think there's another trend that we see, and that is more and more data becomes available to everybody. Yeah. So, so there's much more open source um, and democratization of data, and the, the best use of the data will basically give you a competitive advantage. So, and those companies that don't invest in developing new methods will always lag behind in terms of the knowledge, how they can apply to it, and so, so they will always have a competitive disadvantage over those companies that attract talents that actually also want to work on these um, most cutting-edge uh, approaches and that are able to implement these newest and novel uh, approaches to make more sense of the data, make better sense of the data, and therefore having better decisions in the overall drug development process. Absolutely. And this brings to mind one of the talks uh, that took place at our uh, the PS, joint PSI symposium with uh, Chris Havron, who discussed how Roche is actually building a communities, um, a statistical communities, where you know, they're making these data sets available Mm -hmm. uh, to different groups. Different uh, groups within Roche. Yeah, yeah, different groups, but you know, you, you, you can take this model and extract it, yeah. you know, make it, you know, global, if you even mm -hmm. if, if you wish, we have our data sets, and then, you know, you, you just allow teams of people, you know, to come up with different ways of analyzing it, answering the questions, and I think just in the, in the approach, you can actually see how, you know, how they're approaching the problem, what, how they're applying methods or developing methods, um, you get a lot of ideas. Mm -hmm. And this, yes, gives you answer, but it also gives you potential new questions. Uh, and I thought that was a great, great approach. And I think it's very important to uh, embrace and be active in the, you know, in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the community, you know, encourage, be part of it, but also drive it and encourage this approach. Because as we said before, uh, the, the, it's not these. These are not questions that often can be answered by an individual or a team. I think it really needs a really community, a really collaborative community approach. And we we we've seen that. And you know, hats off to our computer science colleagues who really, uh, I think, embraced that and done that. If you want to enter a machine learning competition, you, you, you have your you have your choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and people are not only making data available; they're making code available. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're building a community. You know, in a way, we're actually addressing, you know, methodological challenges. Um, and these communities are actually really areas where lots of innovation can happen and lots of change can happen. So, so, and there's a lot of different examples in history about that. One of the um, most prominent. Uh, uh, prominent ones is actually, for example, the, the so-called Medici effect. So, so in, um, the Medici was a very, very rich 
family in uh, the middle of Italy, in, in Florence, and they attracted lots of different highly skilled people, um, philosophers, uh, artists, and they all came together and basically that originated uh, the Renaissance. So if you bring lots of nicely skilled people together, you create an uh, environment where they work together, Correct. not so much against each other. There can be some healthy competition, I think yeah. that's, that's good. That really drives innovation and I think here, uh, as we have more and more data becoming available, data becomes an asset overall and analyzing the data and, and getting the best insights out of the data becomes a competitive advantage. So I think it's that's why innovation is so important and that's why also statisticians need to embrace all these different technologies, understand them and then apply them correctly. So, so Saturday, I think, is a Absolutely, and, 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 and I think there is a, uh, a need and demand for statisticians, A, to be part of this community and these movements that are happening. You know, and it's not only in, in, the, in the analysis, but for example, in the development of IT platforms and methods, I mean... Yeah, or, or there's a lot of things you know, also... Things are going in parallel, right? It's not, just about, it's not just about analysis, it's okay. You might, you might have, you know, that's... That's why neural nets took so long, perhaps, to be so widespread. Which is, I think, it's really, you know, we we knew about these methods for 20 years. It's just now that the, now we have the hardware and computer power and platforms that enable to to run it. And that's and, and that's also growing. It's another discipline, but it's it's a, it's a sister discipline that is growing exponentially, right? So now you can you don't even need to have hardware in house. You can just do it on the cloud. Yeah. You know, pay for use. And the other thing is, in parallel with these kind of things, you have all these digital solutions, so to say, that come. You know, so um, where you not just have the biological pill, so to say, but you enhance it with, you know, variables, with uh, other digital things that make sure that you're using it in the right way, and that you, you know. Uh, get more out of it, or that uh, you do treat yourself also with non-pharmacological things and and uh, improve your health. So I think there's a lot of uh, things happening there where AI or machine learning plays a bigger role. Yeah, I mean absolutely. Right? So, uh, you know, you, and you've touched upon um, some of them. I think I think also. There are other areas where I think uh, AI will have a big impact, which is all the, um, in the all the digital text yeah. arena. I think that's that's a big area. Natural now, language processing. Natural language processing. So that's you know we're able to now capture information that perhaps wasn't so available yeah. in the past, and then use that in statistical models, for example, uh, imaging. Again, yeah. is probably one of the highest areas just because these methods work so well on, um, on on images, but any sort of you know if you think about neuroimaging, radiography, all the all, yeah. all the stuff, I think it, it it works really well. And so there are great applications. But for statisticians, maybe there is an opportunity to integrate some of this data, for example, with clinical data. And as you said, uh, you know, imagine the possibility of you know using models that include. You know, you know, a variety of sources, including 
clinical data with, for example, physiological data, you know, behavioral, other type of behavioral data, you know, lifestyle yeah. data, you know, yeah. you, you, you know, and, and, and then again, you, you, you know, people don't live in vacuums, right? They, they live in an environment and so being able to capture also some of the environmental data and lifestyle data as you touched upon, I think it's going to be critical. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm absolutely sure that, you know, for certain diseases, uh, weather conditions play a role or um, things like that. So, so there's lots of, lots of possibilities and I think it's, um, it's really a call to action for statisticians to uh, look for opportunities there, look out for, for additional training like the uh, PSI events that we have had recently had yeah. and uh, I'm pretty sure there will be lots of further webinars uh, coming up. There's surely something at the next PSI conference that's coming up and uh, so I can only encourage people to have a look into that and uh, also reach out to, to colleagues within the uh, companies that, that work on that and these might not sit directly in the statistics department, they might sit in other departments and I think working there together um, and not playing us against them is much more the better approach to uh, move overall forward. Yeah, and I think so you mentioned PSI, and I believe they have a special interest group. Ah, uh, yeah, there's a special interest group in data science. science. So yeah. that's something I would recommend people to uh, to get involved with. Um, but then I think it, it, it's it's really down to statisticians to be somewhat proactive. And a just you know there's plenty of online resources, yeah. and it doesn't take much because the, these are methods are familiar. I mean. They, they, you know, I, I like to, for example, now to think of uh, logistic regression as a machine learning method, right? If you yeah, just, yeah. If you, no, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's true, right? You just use it in a training testing yep. the, the, the design and you have the basis of ma machine learning, you know? It's, it's, if you look into LinkedIn and you look for data science and then you get all these material about data science and they often start with a t-test. Yeah, so, so I think there is, it's really hard to say this is data science and this is statistics. I'm not sure there's a clear-cut border. And to be honest, I'm not sure whether we need a clear-cut border. Actually. No, and you know, and I think one of the talks at our symposium um, discussed this, right? I mean, uh, aren't statisticians scientists who work with data? Yeah. Right, so really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you yeah. could probably, you know, you apply you know, the, the, the term that you cannot apply the term data scientist to to, um, to statisticians as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks so much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Karim, for this nice discussion. And uh, I think we learned a lot about data science today. We learned a lot about how the industry likely will change and what are all the different possibilities. And I think overall there's a pretty bright future for those statisticians that take action. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thanks. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helped with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com where you can find the show notes 
and you can learn more about our podcast, Boost Your Career as a Statistician in the Health Sector. And please, 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 don't forget to tell your colleagues about this podcast. We want to spread the word and get as much impact on statisticians in the healthcare sector as we can. So, like always, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.